Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard to today's Sunday special with Human Events. And we have on someone who's very special joining us today, this Sunday. It's Roger Stone, longtime, iconic, legendary political operative, but also, also an acclaimed author. And there is a piece that came out recently in the news about JFK, classified files, and the fact that President Biden has extended the classification of files regarding the JFK assassination. But what many people may not realize is that Roger Stone wrote an entire book all about the investigation and what really happened. And we've got him here for the Sunday special. Roger, thank you so much for joining us. Jack, thanks very much for having me. So let's get into the the, the top of it here. What's the latest what are these files that Biden has classified and why are they continuing to hold this back? Uh, in 1978, uh, the, uh, the Congress, under uh, intense fire, uh, formed something called the House Intelligence Select Committee on Assassinations. And the purpose of it was to reexamine the assassinations of not only uh, President John F. Kennedy, but also Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, and in that reexamination and hearings, since most of the people staffing that committee uh, had come from the investigation of organized crime, on the one hand, they debunked the Warren Commission theory that Oswald uh, was alone, not gunman, communist acting alone. Uh, they declared that the that organized crime was involved in the murder of Kennedy. But then they went no further. In other words, they they left us hanging uh, on the rest. At that time, they passed a law that said uh, in 2017, 20, some 25 years later, all of the uh, documents pertaining to the murder of JFK would become declassified unless the president of the United States filed in an objection, in which case president had the authority to kick the can down the road and set up a future date to re-examine and release the material. So in 2017, uh, relatively early in his first term, uh, that date rolled around and Donald Trump was in the White House. Um, I contacted him and I asked him, what, do you, what, what, do you, what, were you, what are you going to do about the JFK documents? And he said, what are you talking about? I said, well, under the the assassinations uh, uh, records law, all this material is going to become made public unless you decide otherwise. And he said, why hasn't anyone brought this to my attention? I said, well, that's really a question for your staff, sir. Uh, but we're only a couple of weeks away from the release date. He said, I don't think this is right. I said, it's definitely right. I would ask you to look into it uh, and see what what you think. Uh, and he came back to me about a week later and he said, uh, well, you're absolutely right. Uh, this material is scheduled for declassification. Um, you know, they they don't want me to release it. Now, by they, I take that to mean the intelligence agencies. And I say, well, what could possibly be their argument? They said and he said uh, it will expose our sources and methods. Well, first of all, our sources are all dead. There's nobody who was directly involved uh, at any level uh, in the assassination of John Kennedy who's living. And secondarily, uh, 
if the United States government was, as I believe, actively involved in the murder of a president, well, that's a method we as citizens need to know about. So what then subsequently happened was um, Trump did release roughly 80% of the documents, and we found out some shocking things. For example, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald uh, had gotten a, you know, a 1099 from the FBI. That's because he had been on their payroll. He was an informant. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald had attended the foreign languages school that is run by the Central Intelligence Agency in North Carolina. That's how he learned to speak Russian. Uh, we learned about uh, President Lyndon Johnson's early membership in Texas in the Ku Klux Klan. That was among uh, the documents that were included. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff there that uh, historians poured through. There was a lot of interesting data. But even he, Trump, held back 20% of the documents. Uh, when I had the occasion to ask him about that, I said, um, why didn't you let it all out? And he said, I, I can't tell you. It's so horrible. You wouldn't believe it. Someday you'll find out. <laughs> and, and that that was the sum total of it. He didn't want to talk about it any further. Fast forward now. So he kicked the can down the road uh, to uh, President Joe Biden. The new date set by Donald Trump uh, to re-review when these documents uh, should be released was several weeks ago. And no surprise, once again, Joe Biden has decided to conceal this information from the American people. So we have this missing 20% that's still outstanding. It's still staying out from us, still staying away. You mentioned before that you believe the U.S. may have been involved, the U.S. government. And the title of the book, I mean, you put it right out there, The Man Who Killed Kennedy, The Case Against LBJ. And Roger, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I, I actually sat and read this book when I was still in the Navy while, while amidships in my, in my bunk, you know, on my bunk bed on a Navy ship, just sitting there paging. Actually, I had an e-copy of it, so I had it on my Kindle because you couldn't get too much stuff in your sea bag. And uh, I read this thing cover to cover, as it were, while sitting on a Navy ship and, and realizing that there's so much that even Oliver, it, it, it wasn't enough for Oliver Stone to fit it all in the movie. So I guess we needed Roger Stone to come out and give us the rest. Well, kindly enough, after Oliver Stone read my book, um, he actually sent me a note in which he said, uh, had he known a lot of the things that I brought to the fore in my book, he would have included them in his movie, that he didn't really understand the central role that Lyndon Johnson played in the murder of John F. Kennedy. So, look, I, I, I make a compelling argument using eyewitness evidence, fingerprint evidence, uh, deep Texas politics. Uh, and a huge amount of what I, I admit to you is circumstantial, but I think compelling evidence that Lyndon Baines Johnson is the man who had the motive, means, and opportunity to kill John F. Kennedy. His motive um, was the most obvious. He was under investigation, he, Johnson, uh, in the Bobby Baker scandal. Bobby Baker was the uh, sergeant of the U.S. Senate, was Lyndon Johnson's chief bagman. Uh, all corruption regarding Senate appropriations flew, flew, uh, flowed through Baker. 
The Senate hearings into how into Bobby Baker opened on November twenty second, November nineteen sixty three. Throughout the day of Kennedy's assassination, Johnson was on the phone uh, back to Washington to see if his names had come up yet in the hearing. But the other scandal, the scandal that was a much bigger scandal, was the Billy Sol Estes scandal. Billy Sol Estes was a flamboyant Texas dealmaker, wheeler dealer, uh, who would ultimately go to prison for his crimes. Uh, and um, Johnson had gotten enormous federal grain storage contracts from which uh, Sal Estes made millions, uh, and so did his silent partner, Lyndon Baines Johnson. Uh, I went to one of the book signings uh, by Robert Caro, who's written a multi-volume uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning biography uh, of uh, Lyndon Johnson. And I asked him, how is it possible that Billy Salest is not even mentioned in every any of those books? P.S. Salestis took the fall, did time. When he did, after he got out of prison, um, he put forward a series of statements uh, which, uh, which implicate Lyndon Johnson uh, in the murder of John F. Kennedy. Needless to say, uh, those got very little uh, media coverage at the time. Now, I remember, and, and we'll dig into this and peel it back a little bit, because it's a very interesting theory of the case. And I think it's also something that a lot of people have have circled around, even from the moments of when it initially happened. Of course, obviously, the USSR, the involvement of Harvey uh, Oswald and some of these Cuban groups made him a perfect smokescreen. But then at the same time, and even myself looking at it um, many years after the fact, it's once Jack Ruby takes the shot at Oswald, suddenly it begins asking the question. It's everyone asking the question, what's really going on here? And was this really the only person who was involved in a, a lucky shot on the president of the United States. And I think it's something where, you know, when people talk about uh, murder mysteries and conspiracies, it, it really is the one that everyone comes back to that the, be the minute you begin opening up this door, that suddenly so much information spills out. It's it's in the midst of the raucous 60s, a time of great change, a time, a time of great upheaval, great tensions. Obviously, the Cuban Missile Crisis going on at the time. The Cold War is in full swing. And so it is a time when we also know that the intelligence agencies were at the peak of their powers and the peak of their influence, at least from a physical perspective, within the United States and certainly within the U.S. government. And so we'll, we're, we're coming up on our first break here. But but Roger, what was it that drove you to write this book in, in just a minute? Uh, I had a conversation when I was working for former President Richard Nixon, this conversation which he had a couple cocktails uh, and I asked him point blank, who killed John F. Kennedy? Uh, kind of shuddered and said, let me put it to this way. Lyndon and I both wanted to be president. The difference was I wasn't willing to kill for it. Wow. There it is. Wow. And talk about someone who did, by the way, actually have their election stolen, not the 
the later election, but the first election, that of 1960, which has been, which has all come out, and I think people widely acknowledge. But at the same time, we're not allowed to talk about things that may have happened recently, only things that happened far, far in the past. Stay tuned. We're going to be right back with our continuing coverage, this special of Who Shot JFK with Mr. Roger Stone. Roger, let's wind back the clock. November 22nd, 1963, Dealey Plaza, Dallas, Texas. We've seen the film. We've seen the review, the Zabruder film, Jackie Onassis, um, her, her actions, her face after. What happened prior to that motorcade driving through the plaza? Not just what happened in the video, but what really happened. Well, first of all, it's important to understand the whole purpose of Kennedy's trip to Texas, which is insisted on by Vice President Lyndon Johnson, is to bind up a division in the Texas Democratic Party uh, between the old conservative bourbon wing of the party, represented by Lyndon Johnson, uh, and the more liberal progressive wing of the party with a growing Hispanic constituency headed by Ralph Yarborough. So the idea is that that, uh, Kennedy would go to Dallas, be seen with the leaders of both wings of the party to bind the party. Uh, It is uh, Lyndon Johnson's then chief of staff, John Connolly, uh, then governor of Texas after he was the chief of staff, Senator Johnson, later secretary of the treasury under President Richard Nixon, Um, who insists uh, on the route through Dealey Plaza. Uh, Kennedy had stayed the night, the previous night in Fort Worth in a hotel. Uh, He's driving from Fort Worth to the Merchandise Mart uh, in Dallas. Uh, The route through Dealey Plaza is neither the most direct route, nor is it the safest route, because the Secret Service manual specifically prohibits the presidential limousine from ever coming to a full stop uh, in, in, in Dealey Plaza. Not only does the limousine have to come to a full, full stop, it has to make a hard right turn. Uh, but under the Secret Service manual, the buildings on both sides of the street are supposed to have been searched, uh, cleared and sealed. That hasn't happened. Uh, they're supposed to be plain clothes Secret Service agents uh, in uh, in the uh, crowds on both sides, and that doesn't happen. There's supposed to be six uh, es- a motorcycle escort of six motorcycles, three each abreast of the presidential limousine. There's only one motorcycle, and it is behind the presidential limousine uh, in violation of the manual. Uh, and then, of course, there's supposed to be uh, uh, two Secret Service agents. Uh, on the back bumper of the car, you can go to YouTube and see one of them being told by his superior to stand down. He's shrugging his shoulders. So uh, all of the Secret Service protocols, all of which had been followed in Kennedy's trips to Chicago and Miami in the days just prior to the trip uh, to Texas, uh, are violated in this particular case. I establish in my book, uh, that an attorney for Lyndon Johnson had obtained the uh, Secret Service manual early in the Kennedy presidency. In fact, on Inauguration Day, uh, 1961, a bitter, bitter cold day 
in which Washington had been hit by a blizzard uh, at the outdoor ceremony in which Kennedy uh, is sworn in. Uh, after Kennedy is sworn in, uh, Lyndon Johnson is sworn in as vice president. Presidential speechwriter Ted Sorensen turns to Sergeant of Arms and Lyndon Johnson, Lieutenant Bobby Baker, and says, well, congratulations, Bobby. Uh, Bobby Baker says, John F. Kennedy will live a, will die a premature and violent death. And he storms away. There, there you have it, folks. So there's there's all of this tension. And at the same time, when when you look at the JFK assassination, there's so many uh, competing theories out there in the various research communities, the various um, you know, Oliver Stone has his opinion. Jake Tapper will always come in and make sure to defend the official version of events every time anyone talks about this. It's almost like it's like he's being told that he has to say something about this. It's very interesting. Um, but Jake is someone I, I keep an eye on as as the leaker of the dossier and the the validator of the dossier, as we all remember from 2016, 2017. So, you know, Roger, what would you say then to folks that come to you and say, well, Stone, you've 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 got it completely wrong. It was it wasn't LBJ. It was it was the mob or it was the banks or it was the Soviets or it was the Langley. Um, you're you're barking up the wrong tree. LBJ would never do that. He may have been a little kooky later on in years, but he wouldn't do something like this. Look, I, I built my my book on the shoulders of many, many others. In other words, I don't think any of those people are wrong. Uh, the uh, the military, the military industrial complex, the intelligence agencies uh, and uh, and the Pentagon, their motive is uh, quite simple. It's uh, the Bay of Pigs, uh, which is a failed military invasion of of Cuba for which they blame Lyndon. Jo uh, pardon me. They blame John F. Kennedy. Uh, what hasn't been written is uh, that plan included the use of twenty nine uh, uh Panamanium flagged bombers that were supposed to be piloted by Cuban pilots that were supposed to take off from Panama to provide air cover for the men storming the beach for reasons that are unknown. Uh, Charles Cable, the number two man at the CIA, whose brother Earl Cable just happens to be the mayor of Dallas in a Lyndon Johnson intimate, uh, canceled the air cover. The last minute, the generals and the Joint Chiefs are telling JFK, well, you've got to send in the Air Force. That's the only way to save this operation. Kennedy had only green-lighted the, the Bay of Pigs on the condition that we had plausible deniability uh, that this was an indigenous Cuban uprising, not a U.S. invasion. Uh, they also blamed Kennedy uh, in the Cuban Missile Crisis. The narrative you've been told that brave Jack and Bobby Kennedy faced down Nikita Khrushchev and he removed the missiles from Cuba, thus averting World War III, uh, ignores what we learned 40 years later, but which was at that time classified. We removed our missiles from Turkey and Italy in a bargain, changing the, the, uh, the balance of power in Europe in return for a pledge from Khrushchev to remove the missiles from Cuba. So uh, there's there's great trepidation uh, uh, that uh, Kennedy is soft uh, in the intelligence agencies. As far as organized crime is concerned, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson was on the pad for organized crime. He was being paid by Carlos Marcello, who ran the mob in both Louisiana and Texas, 
to protect the uh, gambling dens uh, that were run in Houston, Dallas, and San Antonio. A man named Jack Halfer uh, was the bagman delivering Johnson's payments. Uh, Halfer received a presidential pardon, by the way, on November 23rd, 1963. How convenient. Uh, those who say uh, the bankers were upset, yes, John and Robert Kennedy were insisting on a silver or gold-backed dollar. The Rothschilds were not happy uh, about this. Um, they wanted to move towards paper money, which has been the ruination of our of our system. Big Texas Oil, their chief uh, uh, their chief water carrier uh, in Washington D.C. is, of course, the senator from Texas, led to the vice president. Lyndon Baines Johnson. But as far as the FBI and the CIA are concerned, the CIA's black box budget uh, is controlled uh, by the defense appropriate, a secret, secret defense appropriations subcommittee uh, as chairman of, pardon me, as majority leader of the Senate. Johnson takes the rare step of serving on that committee himself while in the Senate. Traditionally, the majority leader would serve on no committee, although he has the authority to do so. And when he left that position, he left Senator Harry F. Byrd of Florida, one of his closest allies in charge. Johnson is the paymaster for the CIA. And of course, he lives next door in, my, in uh, Morningside Heights uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, the Johnson daughters refer to J. Edgar Hoover, who would have been uh, mandatorily retired in 1974, 1964, had uh, Kennedy been reelected as their Uncle Edgar. So um, Lyndon Johnson is the common thread between uh, the military-industrial complex, uh, the bankers through Elliot Janeway, uh, the, uh, the organized crime through Mar uh, Carlos Marcello. He is the common thread, but he's also the man with the greatest interest. John F. Kennedy has already begun telling people that Johnson will be dropped from the 1964 ticket. If you read the biography of Evelyn Lincoln, uh, Kennedy's uh, personal secretary, and also published within it the notes she made on Air Force One on her way back to Washington after Kennedy has been slain, in which she makes a list of those who may have been responsible. First on her list um, is uh, Lyndon Johnson. The night before the assassination, uh, according to what uh, Jacqueline Kennedy has written, Lyndon Johnson goes to Jack Kennedy's hotel suite in Fort Worth and proposes a change in the lineup of the motorcade, proposing that uh, instead of John Connolly riding in the presidential limousine uh, with Jack Kennedy, that, that uh, Senator Ralph Yarborough, arch enemy of Lyndon Johnson, should ride with the president. Uh, Kennedy says, absolutely not. We're leaving things the way they are. That was the whole purpose for me to be seen with Connolly as the leader of the more conservative wing of the party. I'm not making any changes. Johnson storms out of the room. Uh, Jacqueline Kennedy writes, uh, she said to her husband, what's wrong with him? Uh, and John Kennedy says, oh, he's just being Lyndon. Hmm. He's just being Lyndon. And so when, when you see him, we're coming up on our next break, but when you see through this lens that there are various interests that certainly were served by JFK's removal from office, um, and LBJ then becomes 
the sort of linchpin for all of this, his ties, of course, to Dallas, his ties to the leaders in Dallas, the politicians there, the power structure, it creates a situation where these are all people that know him, from the law enforcement all the way down to the beat cops that are on the street to even potentially some of the Secret Service agents that uh, that are assigned from the local office. When we come back, Roger, I want to talk some more about how could this have been avoided and what would have happened had JFK stayed in office. Come right back, Roger Stone, who shot JFK. Now, Roger, this is one of the cases, of course, some of the most famous gunshots that have ever been taken on U.S. soil. Um, the the uh, There's a lot, that line in Full Metal Jacket, an old Italian bolt-action rifle, scores three hits, including a headshot. Um, this is this is the great, uh, late great R. Ernie Lee, uh, the drill sergeant, uh, describing how a U.S. Marine took the shots that, that took out Kennedy. And so this physical evidence uh, it also is explained through the abilities of a junior prosecutor, uh, later a United States senator from Pennsylvania, who I know you know, uh, the late great Arlen Specter, who comes up with this, the silver bullet theory, which he's later referred to as silver bullet Specter. So the physical evidence, as well as the Zabruder tape, which by the way, none of these, and, and, and people need to understand that in the 1960s, the idea that somebody would be on the side of a road with a camera like a video camera, a video lens like this, um, home camcorders were very new to the market. This is not 2022 where everybody's got a cell phone. And so people knew there would be photographs of the situation. But the fact that an actual videotape of this exists is extremely rare for the situation. So anyone involved from from Harvey on down to to any of these various entities would likely not have anticipated that a video would be shot. So so Roger, let's get into the gunshots, the physical evidence and where we left, you were talking about the placement of the men in the motorcade and in the car itself. Yeah, you got a number of problems here. First of all, uh, no government marksman has ever been able to replicate the alleged shot. Uh, because a motorcycle police officer had left his microphone on, we know the exact timing between the shots. Uh, and uh, no no marksman, uh, and Jesse, Jesse Ventura tried as well, but no government marksman has ever been able to get off three shots within the time sequence required. Uh, also, if you look at the footage in the Zapporter film, there's a period in which Kennedy's uh, motorcade drives behind a street sign, so he cannot physically be seen, which does not lend itself to a clear shot. Additionally, uh, if John F. Kennedy was killed with a cheap $29 Italian carbine, how come there are no nitrate burns on his hands or his chest, according to the police uh, report? Uh, when Oswald uh, is uh, apprehended, um, uh, they parade him in public. What does he say? I didn't shoot anyone, he says. I'm a patsy. Uh, indeed, um, he did not shoot uh, anyone. You also have to wonder why a man suspected of killing the president of the United States is being paraded through public in, in a public area where, of course, he is murdered by Jack Ruby. The Warren Commission tells us that Jack Ruby had no known association with organized crime which is funny because he ran a casino for Mark Carlos Marcello in Havana, 
uh, and his club, the Carousel Club in Dallas, is actually owned by Marcelo, uh, and Ruby is merely fronting for him. Jack Ruby is known as a longtime button man for the mob. You also have the problem, of course, with the murder of Officer Tippett. Um, it is alleged that in his fleeing from uh, uh, Dealey Plaza, Oswald goes first to his home for a change of clothes, at least a change of jacket. The landlady, by the way, uh, testifies to the Warren Commission that a Dallas police car pulls up in front of the boarding house, honks the horn three times and drives away. What's that about? Why, why did that not make the Warren Commission a report? Uh, the, her deposition is quite findable. Then, of course, at the scene uh, where Oswald allegedly uh, shot Tippett, uh, the shell casings on the ground uh, came from uh, an automatic. The problem with that is when Lee Harvey Oswald is apprehended at a theater nearby, um, he's brandishing a revolver. Uh, th th this entire story is uh, full of holes. Uh, at this point, the thing that's uh, most bullet riddled is the Warren Commission report. Uh, even in the case uh, of Lyndon Johns, pardon me, in the case of Arlen Specter's magic bullet theory, there's a couple different problems. First of all, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI wrap up their investigation of the murder of John F. Kennedy in less than a week. Uh, look, one gunman shooting uh, uh, from behind, three shots, that's it. Okay, kid, they say to 29-year-old uh, Arlen Specter, uh, who's been brought in as the chief investigator, the deputy uh, uh, of the Warren Commission, go wrap it up, kid. And the problem with that is uh, that Jim Tagg, um, who was a young car dealer, uh, had walked down to Dealey Plaza to watch uh, the presidential motorcade. And while he's standing there, a bullet hits the curb next to where he's standing. A fleck of cement comes up and grazes his shoulder, and he is bleeding. This is seen by a Dallas uh, County Sheriff's officer who says, we've got to go report this, takes him to the Dallas police. He fills out a report. Um, he expects to hear from the authorities, but then nothing happens. He keeps seeing on television and reading the newspaper, there are only three shots. All three shots are accounted for. They all came uh, from uh, behind, uh, even though uh, in the Zaprutter film, Kennedy's head can be seen uh, uh, back. He, it goes back and to the right. Now, I believe there are multiple gunmen. I believe Kennedy shot from the front and the back. Uh, there is a, an entrance wound on his throat. Um, that is, uh, they immediately do a tracheotomy so that you can't tell whether that's an entry wound or an extra wound. Uh, but it is indisputable, and the New York Times reported this, that at the request of uh, J. Edgar Hoover, Warren Commission member Gerald Ford, then a congressman from uh, Michigan and the minority leader of the Republicans in the House, physically takes a pencil and on the diagram in the autopsy moves the depiction of the wound from Kennedy's upper back to his neck uh, to accommodate the, the magic bullet theory. When asked by the New York Times why he did this, he said, well, the country needed finality. Not the country needed truth, but the country needed finality. Uh, so um, I believe that there are certainly more than three bu bullets. Uh, and there's uh, physical evidence 
uh, which they have tried forever to, to explain away uh, that Kennedy was shot, you know, uh, in a turkey shoot from both the front and the back. And this, this is, I was just going to say, that's the line in, in this, the Oliver Stone movie. They said he drove, it's uh, Jim Garrison, he drove into a turkey shoot, that it was not some lone gunman. And I, I do think that the, the, just the general common sense uh, take by so many people having heard this as the official explanation that a, a 29-year-old kid with, uh, who, had, who had had some military experience but was not um, notably proficient with this was, was somehow able to pull something like this off, it, it doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't carry water. And the idea that, uh, that we were just supposed to go along with it, in, a, in addition to, as you say, there are so many stories that have come out from that day, from that moment, uh, people who are seen and never heard from again, the, the man with the umbrella, uh, you know, who has an umbrella on a, on a clear day, these, these type of things. That multiple, multiple witnesses um, are subsequently killed. That, that is true. Um, Lee, Lee Harvey Oswald is not only not the shooter, he's not even on the sixth floor of this Texas school book depository building. There are multiple witnesses who see a man hmm. uh, in the window of the sixth floor. They all describe, some of them are prisoners, by the way, in a, in a jail, which is across the street, kind of a captive audience, so to speak, um, where they have a clear view of the Texas School Book Depository building. Others are on the ground. They all describe a man who is middle set, balding, uh, and wearing spectacles. Some of them say he's wearing a light-colored jacket. Uh, that is a description of the man whose fingerprints are found on the so-called crow's nest. His name is Malcolm Wallace. Uh, he's an employee of the U.S. Agriculture Department, a patronage job gotten for him um, by uh, Senator Lyndon Johnson. We have his fingerprints because in 1951, uh, in cold blood and in uh, the wide open, he murders a man uh, in Dallas who's involved in a, uh, in a, uh, uh, a love triangle with Lyndon Johnson's sister, uh, and the man has begun trying to blackmail Johnson regarding corruption and the uh, and the U.S. Senate election. So Malcolm Wallace uh, killed that man. He was convicted of first-degree murder, the only case of first-degree murder in Texas history in which the man convicted received probation. Um, <laughs> he is at least one of his shooters. Joan Mellon, uh, who's a pretty prominent author, has written a book in an attempt to debunk this. She's full of crap. I'd be happy to debate her anytime, any place. I'd like to know where the funding for her book came from. Uh, Lyndon Johnson was very, very shrewd about his legacy. Uh, he sent Jack Valente, one of his top aides, to head the Mosher Bishish Association. So there would never be a movie uh, uh, until Oliver Stone's movie came along about the Kennedy assassination. Uh, the former chairman emeritus of CNN, uh, whose name enough, strangely enough, was also Johnson, is one of the reasons why CNN is more adamant about push pushing the falsehoods of the Warren Commission than any of the, the other networks. And in addition, we, we've had this case, the separate commission that came out and found that it was not merely the act of one man. This is an official government case, and yet that's never referred to, that's never discussed. You don't see it getting the prominence that it ever should. I think one of the first times I ever realized, realized it existed was from reading your book, 
was reading this book about JFK. And then really, because for me, this had always been one of those cases that I'd heard about and I, I didn't necessarily accept the, uh, the, the company line on the whole thing, but I'd never gone down the rabbit hole because I didn't feel like I had a good entry point until I got a copy of your book. And I said, you know what? It's time for me to do this. I'm going to dig through. Now, Roger, we're coming up on our last break, but when we come back, I, want, I do want to get into that next question of the America that would have been had these shots not been fired. Stay tuned. We're coming back for our last segment with Roger Stone on Who Shot JFK. Now, Roger, we're coming in. It's our last segment. We've laid out the foundation for why so many powerful entities stood to gain from the death of JFK. You've walked us through the physical evidence in addition to the evidence of the route, the security, the lack of security, the security violations of the Secret Service, and you've debunked much of the physical evidence that's presented to us in the official case. But I want to ask you a question, and, and this is more drawing on your background as uh, a political analyst and a political operative, but walk us through what would have been the America that could have existed, and I, and I know it's, you know it's hard to ask those type of questions, but let's say JFK lives, goes on, and we'll give him the re-election. Do we not get into Vietnam? Do we not go off the gold standard? Walk us through the America that would have been. Well, we do know uh, that uh, Kennedy had uh, reached out through uh, French back channels to Fidel Castro uh, to talk about peace talks, to talk about uh, uh, coexistence. Uh, the Pentagon was very deeply opposed uh, to that. Um, we also uh, know uh, that, uh, uh, and there's some discrepancy about this. It is the thesis uh, of Oliver Stone. Uh, it is also the thesis of those who wish to burnish the image of Camelot, uh, that John Kennedy was, uh, uh, was waking up to the fact that uh, a deeper and deeper involvement in Vietnam was a mistake and was preparing to withdraw troops. It is notable that in an oral history after JFK's death, uh, Robert Kennedy insists vehemently that that was not the case, that John Kennedy was committed to the defeat uh, of communism in Vietnam. So uh, that's an open question. Um, he certainly was adamant about a gold or silver backed dollar. It would ultimately be Richard Nixon who closes the gold window. Nixon's probably Nixon's single greatest mistake, which I've written about in two different books. Uh, but the, but the, uh, the bankers were already agitating to come off the gold standard. Maybe that would not have happened. Kennedy had a very deep distrust uh, of the intelligence agencies. After uh, the fiasco at the Bay of Pigs, he threatened, as he put it, to smash the CIA into a million pieces. Uh, and, um, and therefore, perhaps you would not have the, the rogue CIA, the rogue FBI that you have today. Interestingly enough, in the immediate heels of Kennedy's murder, Former President Harry Truman wrote an op-ed piece for the Washington Post in which he said signing the CIA into law was the greatest single mistake that he had made. They were supposed to be limited only to foreign intelligence gathering and services, but they were operating in this country illegally. That op-ed runs for one edition only before it is spiked 
So they actually were able to spike an op-ed by a former, and at that point, very respected president uh, of the United States. What uh, Kennedy might have achieved in the second term? Well, he achieved nothing for civil rights in the first term. Uh, he had uh, campaigned very hard for a fair housing law, for a voting rights act, uh, but uh, President, Vice President Lyndon Johnson, a lifelong segregationist, I might add, um, had convinced him that because the old bulls in the Senate chaired most of the committees, they would eviscerate Kennedy's budget and program, and that he had to wait until a second term to keep his promises on civil rights. Then, of course, after the murder of John F. Kennedy, it was Lyndon Johnson, the man who wrote the Southern Manifesto against civil rights, although didn't sign it himself because he was looking at running for president in 1960, who completely reverses himself and becomes essentially the father of American civil rights law, uh, saving that opportunity for himself. That, in turn, bought Johnson an enormous amount of cover to uh, deepen our engagement in Vietnam, which even then, Democrats on the left were beginning to question. So um, it is, uh, I have new respect for Kennedy. As a Nixon Republican, uh, I'd always resented um, uh, something I document in two of my other books, the theft of the 1960 election. Uh, but I now recognize uh, that Kennedy was a much greater man than I had thought, that his plans for the country um, were much more anti-establishment and much more reform-oriented. I think he was a peacemaker, even though he had run to Nixon's right uh, in 1960 as a Cold Warrior, uh, insisting that we uh, uh, that uh, we take a harder line on Castro. Uh, we fought about the Chinese islands of Quimoy and Matsu that were then uh, being uh, disputed in terms of their ownership between the nationalist Chinese and the communist Chinese. <laughs> They're still, still being disputed. Uh, but, but ironically, uh, in retrospect, um, I, the whole exercise brought me much, much greater respect uh, for John F. Kennedy. I think he was a great man. I think he was murdered um, by all of these entities. Each one of them had their own specific interest. Johnson's interest was staying out of prison, obviously. Uh, but I think um, his, his, his second term as, candidate, as president, I think he would have achieved many great things. We well, you know, Roger, when I actually um, had an occasion back in 2016 to be a member of a panel on the Joy Reid show on MSNBC, and uh, when when asked about civil rights, I brought up the history of... <laughs> Lyndon Baines Johnson and his personal history of being against civil rights for the entire time that he was in the Congress and the Senate. And uh, she promptly tried to have me thrown off of her show. She didn't like that I brought that up. There's a terrific <laughs> book on this entitled Bystander uh, by Nick Bryant, uh, which documents uh, Lyndon Johnson. Uh, first of all, John F. Kennedy's great promises uh, uh, in the 1960 campaign all of which were thwarted by Vice President Lyndon Johnson until the time that Johnson became president and then reserved those positions uh, for himself. As you know, he is famously quoted as saying, I'll have those yep. N-word voting Democratic for 100 years. And so he has. Roger, the other case that I think I think there's another book to be written. And Roger, I, I don't know if you're the man to do it, but I think you are. And that's a book about Watergate, because this story 
I think in the aftermath of the intelligence agency's actions during the Trump administration, it has gotten so many millions of people going back and re-examining some of these past cases like the JFK assassination and then also Watergate from a sense of this individual, Mark Felt, Deep Throat, was he a leaker or was he a plotter? And were Woodward and Bernstein, were they themselves uh, intrepid journalists or were they patsies for the national security state? And I think that's a frame that none of the Watergate researchers have really explained yet but I think it's a story that people are willing now to actually have the discussion of. And, and John Dean and Madeline Dean and whose names are on that client list in her desk. And there's a whole story about that. But interestingly enough, this also comes up in your book, Watergate, in the sense that Watergate is almost a an operation that that builds out of Dealey Plaza and what happened there. Walk us through that. Sure. First of all, four of the uh, uh, Watergate burglars are on the ground uh, in Dilly Plaza. How could that be? Uh, e. Howard Hunt, one of the Watergate burglars, uh, says on his uh, deathbed that he was there working for the agency, but he was a backbencher. He also says, by the way, Lyndon Johnson was the man calling the shots. Um, uh, you, The people who removed Kennedy are the same people who moved uh, Nixon and for the same reasons. Uh, the Pentagon and the Central Intelligence Agency were opposed to the strategic arms limitation agreements that Nixon reached with the Russians. They were opposed to normalizing our relationships uh, with, uh, with the Chinese. They were opposed to ending the war in Vietnam. They were opposed to ending the military draft. Richard Nixon's great sin, he was a peacemaker. They expect him to be even more of a cold warrior than Johnson had been. I don't know how you could have stepped up the bombing in Vietnam any more than Lyndon Johnson did, but uh, Henry Kissinger and, uh, and Richard Nixon understood that they needed to withdraw from Vietnam. They needed to cover their retreat while doing so. So um, there's been a number of, of documents declassified just in recent months Terrific piece on this by James Rosen, uh, now at Newsmax, I think formerly with Fox News, uh, at Real Clear Politics. It is absolutely clear uh, that at least three of the Watergate burglars are still actively on the payroll uh, of the Central Intelligence Agency, and they're reporting uh, to their handlers uh, prior and during uh, the break-in. So uh, it is uh, in the book Silent Coup by Len Kolodny, who passed recently. Uh, it is a second coup. Nixon, it's not that Nixon's men did not give the Central Intelligence Agency the opening. They did. But who is it who starts demanding the wiretapping of uh, journalists and White House staff members to find leakers? Why, that would be Henry Kissinger, a man who has walked away from that train wreck completely and totally unscathed. The people who killed Kennedy, John Kennedy, are the same people who killed his brother, Robert Kennedy, and who are the same people, in essence, uh, who removed Richard Nixon. Uh, and in many ways, it is, uh, their, uh, it is their successors who sought to remove uh, Donald Trump from, president, from the presidency. 
And I think that's what brings it all together. Roger, I'm, I know you've done one book on Nixon, but I'm just saying, I, I think there might be another book specifically on maybe a follow-up to Silent Coup in a sense, in a spiritual sense. And I think Roger Stone is the man to do it. A man who always has Richard Nixon very close to him. Roger, thank you very much for, for taking time with us here on Human Events Daily. Folks, you can do a Google image search of Roger Stone shirtless to understand what that means. Roger, where can people follow you? Uh, they can follow me at stonezone.com. You can get a copy of my book, uh, The Man Who Killed Kennedy, The Case Against LBJ, by going to stonezone.com in the shop. You get a signed copy of it. It is a New York Times bestseller. Quite proud of it. Make a great Christmas gift. Um, Jack is alluding to the fact that I have a, a tattoo of Richard Nixon <laughs> on my back. Uh, it's not there for any political reason. It's there as a daily reminder that in life, when you are knocked down, when you suffer defeats, when you have setbacks, when you are uh, dejected or depressed, that's the time you have to get back up on your feet and get back in the game story of Nixon, putting politics aside, is a story of resilience. It's a story of persistence. It's an American story. Roger Stone, God bless you. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, you have my permission to lay ashore.